uh, when Lynn and I first moved to Southern California um, several years ago, we met a gal who would have an impact on our life. And uh, the reason that she would was, was, well, several reasons, actually. There was something different about her life that we had never experienced and that we didn't really understand. Um, there was a way that she conducted her life and the people around her that were different from the people that we knew. And uh, the thing that really stood out was when, she, when Linda went to lunch with her once and had an opportunity to talk to her, she basically summed up everything about her life into a simple sentence. And she said, you know, when I came to know Jesus as my Savior, my whole life changed dramatically. And Linda then came home and shared this story with me that she was working with somebody who knew Jesus. Now, I don't know if that sounds strange to you, but at the time it certainly sounded strange to us that there is somehow or another a way or a relationship that you can have with God that was as personal as a relationship that you may have with another human being. And it was mind-boggling to say the least that you could know God in such a personal and intimate way was something that we had never heard before, really, and obviously up until that point in time had never experienced. And so as we were going through this, in, in our search of knowing God, the question that is asked at this particular point is, you know, is, is God a real person? I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever really thought about that, but is God a real person? You know, when someone says that they know God as if they knew their husband or wife or friend or their children, there's a relationship there, there's an intimacy there that is, is hard to understand. And yet, the question is, is God truly a real person? Can you know God in a personal way? And that's the question that we're going to address this morning because it's critical that we understand that. You see, having, having confidence in a thing isn't the same as having security in a person, if you stop and think about it. Having security in a thing or an inanimate object isn't the same as having security in a person. And uh, as we look at this and go through this, it's interesting to, to understand that you know God is personal. If God is a force or an idea or a principle, there's no real security in that for us. But if He's personal and he's relational, and he understands us, and understands our needs, understands our, our frustrations, understands you know, the things that we struggle with, then we can have confidence and hope that there's a relationship that goes beyond just, I hope this is all true. But you see, wanting God to be personal doesn't make him personal. Wanting God to be intimate doesn't make him intimate. And what we need to understand is that, that the Bible has much to say about whether God is personal or not personal, and we need to recognize that. See, because to many of us, God's nothing more than... than uh, at that time in our life, I could, I could distinctly remember that God was nothing more than... If, if, if he was personal, he wasn't involved. He was distant. It was like Bette Midler's song. You remember that song that she, that she sang and, and uh, made popular? Uh, you know, God's watching over us from a distance. You know, he's kind of like... He's there and he's watching over everything, but he's not really personal, he's not intimate, he's not really involved in our lives to the point where we can know him. But we know that he's there, and to some degree there's some comfort in that, but not really because it's like, but there's a whole bunch of us and does he really care about me? I mean, if he's watching us from a distance, he's got to have bigger and better things to do than worry about what's going on in my life. 
And so there's this culture that we live in has put God at a distance instead of up close and personal. You know, we relegate him to maybe like a rabbit's foot or, you know, rosary beads or, or a statue out in the backyard. Or, you know, I remember growing up and having gone to Catholic church, having little, you know, statues on the dashboard of the car. And then, uh, and, and, and then, shockingly, to find out later that St. Christopher really wasn't a saint after all. And, I mean, I don't know. It, it, just, it just really blows you away. But, you know, you had these little statues. You had those things. And it was kind of like it was an inanimate object. It wasn't in a real person. It was in something. And so as we go through this, we need to ask some questions. Is God a real person? But the problem is to understand it. Ask yourself this, this question. What is a person? What makes... A person, a person. Audience participation time. I've missed it. I don't know about you. What makes a person a person? What attributes? Okay, what, what, like, you want to give us one? Or just go with that. You know, it's kind of a broad, general thing. Can't really go wrong there. Not sticking your neck out. You know, you're not going to get it chopped off. That's, that's a safe answer. But... Okay, you exist. Okay. A physical being, you exist. What did you say? Communication. Uh, personality. Character. Huh? You're probably alive. And yeah, we're going to discuss that in a moment. Does that necessarily make it true? Um, it, it's interesting if you think about it. You know, what is a person? And if you think about that, okay, if that's what makes a person a person, is that what makes God a person? Are we the way we are because God is the way he is? Interesting. Or do we think the way we are must be the way that God is? It's a different way to look at it too. But if you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. We'll just kind of touch on this as an introduction to what makes a person a person. Now if you stop and think about it, many of the things that we're talking about to a certain degree is true of animals. Right? Right? Animals communicate, they bark, they sing, they tweet, whatever they do. Um, so, you know, they can communicate. Um, and yet the Bible teaches that God created animals, and yet God tells us that he created people in a different way than he created animals, and that he created people in his image and his likeness. So what does that really mean? In Acts chapter 17, we see that there's a problem that the Apostle Paul dealt with as far as trying to understand our relationship to God. Acts 17, verse 24, listen to what it says. In verse 23, they're talking about the unknown God. There was a, a town that was filled with statues and trinkets and things that were made out to different and various gods. Obviously, they didn't think one God could take care of everything, so they made a whole bunch of gods up. And there was one God that they had, that they had worshipped, who was an unknown God. They were covering their bases. In case they missed the God that was really the God, they would say, well, we're going to go ahead and make this one to the unknown God. Now we got all our bases covered. Kind of like, isn't that how we are as people? Let's just cover all the bases just to make sure. We'll go ahead and we'll set up a God for the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea and love and fertility and all these things. But if we missed another one, then we'll just say, well, this one's to an unknown God. Well, the Apostle Paul used that and he said, you know what? I noticed that you're religious and all things. And that's what he's looking around. And verse 24 says, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. 
And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I like that. The world presents God as being distant and hard to know, and yet the Bible presents him as being close and not far from every one of us. It says, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we not ought to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. You see what he's saying? We are the offspring of God. Human beings are made and created in the image and likeness of God and are set apart and different than everything else that God has created. So in order to understand what a person is, we need to understand what some of the basic uh, characteristics of personality are. Now, understand this, that, as Armand said, communication may be a characteristic of personality, but it is not something that is just common to human beings because we see that the world, the animal world, can communicate as well. So we've got something to wrestle with, and that is that the, the combination of all these characteristics are what makes human beings different than the animal world that God created. Now, each one in and of themselves may be true of animals and everything else God created, but the sum total of all of them are what makes us as human beings unique in the sight of God. So as we look at these, let's take a look at six basic characteristics that make a person a person and help us to understand that we can better know God. Because that's really what it's all about. How do we know who God is and, and how do we know him better? Well, we need to understand what makes him a person if he indeed is a, is a real person. Number one, we heard someone say, is life. One of the basic characteristics of, of being a person is that you're alive. If you stop and think about it, it's obvious that personality is a part of what lives and not of what is dead. Although the funny thing is, have you ever met someone without a personality? Huh? Sometimes it's kind of like you want to do the pulse test, you know what I mean? It's like, they're just like, they're lifeless. You know, a person that, that has personality, a person that is alive and is vibrant and has vigor and has something going for them, you can tell they're alive. Life is an integral part of being a person. Now, life can be, you know, relegated down to your breathing, and that's it. But, but there's more to it than that. Listen to what the Bible says. In him, about Jesus, John 1, 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, in Genesis 2, 7, and man became a living soul. John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. See, life is a basic characteristic of being a person. Now the question is, well, if God's a person, is God alive? And the Bible clearly teaches that he is. 1 Timothy 4, 10, we read this. And for this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in what? In who? The living God who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. See, you know, the, the, the joke is, God is dead. Well, when did he die? See, the problem is, the Bible specifically teaches that God is not dead, that God is alive. And if one of the basic characteristics of being a person is life, 
the Bible says that God is alive. And he would meet that criteria as far as life is concerned of being a person. The Bible also tells us in Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Listen, it is a terrifying or dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you understand that God, since he is alive, is capable of judging people? Since God is alive, he is capable of judging people. The Bible specifically refers to the fact that God is alive. And that's good to know. Because the basic characteristic of being a person is that there must be life. You know, it's interesting, in Daniel 6, 26 and 27, listen to this, it says, For he is the living God, and steadfast forever, his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and he rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Do you understand how important this is? See, the reason that God could deliver Daniel from the lions is because God is alive. The reason that God can deliver you and me from the problems and the turmoil of this life is because God is alive. He is living. He is active. He is involved in each one of our lives. And it's wonderful to know that God is as alive and, in fact, more alive than the person sitting right next to you. God is alive. And as a result, He is also personal. A personal God. Because of life. In Matthew 25, 23 through 32, Jesus was talking to a bunch of uh, religious teachers. And they came to him one day and they presented this problem. And here's what the dilemma was. They always came up with interesting problems. Here's the one that they challenged him with that day. He said, okay, now listen. There was a man who married this woman. He died. Then, his brother married the same woman. And he died. Then, Another brother married the same woman, and he died. And so on, and so on, and so on. And, and, and seven brothers married the same woman, and they all died. Now, what cracks me up is, like, if I had six other brothers... <laughs> now, think about this now. And, and it's like, after the first one died, I'd be looking over my shoulder... After the second one died, it pretty much cemented for me. And if you're number seven, you marry her and you die too, you deserve whatever happens to you. That's what I say. But that, that's a whole different story. Anyway, but there were seven of them. So, so they all died. And, and they came to Jesus and said, okay, we got a question for you. Which one of the seven is going to be married to her in heaven? Hmm. Now, I'm sure if it was up to the seven... They could probably have worked it out. But listen to what Jesus said. He says, you know what? In heaven, there is no giving of marriage. And he knew that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead anyway. So it really wasn't a question that they had a legitimate concern on how it was to be answered. They were trying to trick him into answering something that would somehow or another conflict with what they believed. And they did not believe that there was a resurrection of the dead. But this is what he said. Jesus quotes Exodus 3.6. He says this, God said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Now, the interesting thing was, all of them had died many years previous to this. But what Jesus told them was, well, wait a minute now. Now, are you going to not deny that Abraham, is, that God is the God of Abraham? Are you going to deny that God is the God of Isaac or Jacob? Now, certainly as a Jew, you wouldn't deny that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now, would you? But it was obvious what Jesus was saying was, guess what? They're still alive. Uh-oh. This was 600 years later. This is 600 years after they had died. And Jesus says to them, they're still living. Ooh. So they didn't say anything. What were they going to say? See, one of the characteristics of being a person is that you're alive. And the interesting thing is, what the Bible teaches is, though your body dies and your spirit is separated from your body, that you are still alive. I'm still alive. When my body checks out, my spirit lives forever. And that's the point that he was making to them was, hey, you know what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all had died, hadn't they? It was 600 years later. But you know what? God is still a God of the living because he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Man, there's some comfort in that. I don't know about you, but I love that. The fact that God is real and he's a person and says that, you know what? And we will continue to be persons in the sight of God even after these crummy bodies that he gave us are gone and done. The second thing is, which, which makes us unique from all the animal world, is that we have what we would call self-consciousness. Self-consciousness. You know what that is? It's knowing that you exist. Knowing that you exist. Think about this. The fact that you know that you exist. One of the greatest passages on the self-consciousness or the awareness of self by God is in Exodus 3.14 when he said these words to Moses. I am who I am. Do you understand that? Remember Moses said, you want me to go to Pharaoh and you want me to say, let all these people go. Okay, good. Now, who should, you, who should I tell him sent me? And God said, tell him, I am who I am. God has an awareness of who he is. And what makes him personal is that he knows who he is. What makes us personal is that we know who we are. Though we do not know who we are to the depth that God knows who we are, because sometimes we don't even know all that there is to know about ourselves. But we know who we are and we have an awareness of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? What he's saying is that you know things about yourself that I don't know, the person sitting next to you don't know, the people in this room don't know. You know things about yourself and are aware of things that are going on in your life and who you are and what you're all about and what makes you tick to the point that, you know what, I don't know, but you know. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I don't even know about the things that I think I know about myself. You understand what I'm saying? Good, because I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sometimes you think you know who you are, but you don't really know who you are, and God knows who you are. Our, my, my chapel message this morning was, you know, Peter thought he knew who he was. He thought he knew, Lord, I'm with you. I'll never sell out. I'll never deny you. He thought he was a man that didn't need forgiveness by God because he hardly ever made mistakes. That's why he asked, hey, Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive people? I don't make that many mistakes, and I need to know because people all around me make mistakes all the time. And I need to know. And so God allowed him to go through a trial that showed him who he really was when he thought he had a deeper and a more solid relationship with the Lord and God exposed that weakness in his life. 
He exposed that pride for what it was to say he needed to lean on God and have God's grace. See, we don't always know who we are. But God knows. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. I don't always know what God knows about me. And that's why Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, we read this. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. See, what he's saying is that you, don't, you are aware of yourself, Chuck, but you do not know everything about yourself, but I do. And if you'll turn to me and trust in me and not lean on your own understanding, if you acknowledge me in everything that you do and follow me, I'll set your path straight. I'll guide you in the right direction. You need to trust in me. You need to trust in my word because you don't really know about yourself what you think you know. But yet I know about myself more than any dog will ever know. Yeah, I was reading the paper there. Did you see this? Mary Tyler Moore is trying to raise $1,000 as if she doesn't have $1,000. What's she raising it for anyway? You know, but she's trying to raise $1,000 to free a lobster that's in an aquarium at a restaurant up in Malibu. Free the lobster. Free the lobster. No, you know, and the reasoning for it, guess what her reasoning was? How would you like to be cooped up in that tank all day long? Now, I just kind of sit down and I scratch my head and I just go, where do people come up with this stuff? I mean, think about it. I, I know you're sitting there eating dinner, and you look over and you see a lobster in a tank, and you think, man, that'd be really a crummy way to live your life. You know, being in that tank all day like that. Man, that's just not right. But it's not like, you know, it's not like the lobster tapped on the side of the aquarium and held up a sign, get me out of here. Please, someone, get me out of here. I've been cooped up in this tank. I'm 65 years old. I need to have a life. This lobster doesn't care about being in the tank. Do you understand? It doesn't have any self-consciousness. It is not aware of itself as human beings are. And the quicker that people would understand that people are people and animals are animals, the better off we'll all be in this world. Goodness gracious me, oh my, the quicker that we figure out that people are people aware of themselves and that animals do not have that problem. Think about this. This is amazing to me. All the distorted things that are going on with people and animals today are all because people try to project that animals are the same as people. They're not. God created people the way he created us in his image and likeness, and we're the only people in creation that are created that way, and animals aren't. What were animals created for? For food. I say, get that sucker out of the tank and put him in a big old pot and get him out of light our ass. Now, I know, I know, now, there's people, oh, no, you can't do that to a lobster. Well, what's a lobster for? You can't get it to roll over. You can't get it to get the newspaper. You can't get it to get your slipper. You can't, it doesn't do anything. Goodness gracious. I, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here, but you know why God created animals? To provide for people. Now, that's worth the price of admission, all right? You understand? God created animals to provide for the needs of people. Thank you very much. Now, some of you are really struggling with that, and you don't even want to deal with it, and it's just too, 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 too beyond your concept to even want to gather in and say, gosh, you know what? Maybe there's some truth to that. But, you know, stop and think about it. If you don't believe that, then everything that you think about animals is distorted. You need to go back and read Genesis 1 and 2 and find out why God made animals so that we can enjoy them, granted, so that we can eat them if necessary, 
so that we can wear the stuff, the fur, the stuff that God puts on them so that it can keep us warm. You see, God has a higher view of people than animals. All right? Why? Because we're aware of ourselves and they are not. Now, here's one other thing about awareness. I love this. Because when you put your faith and trust in Christ and the Spirit of God indwells you, the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. And we now have access to the person of God as we've never had access before. Because the Spirit of God, as He lives within us, as our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God and the mind of God and can share that with us. That's awesome. That's good stuff. And I'll tell you what, and it certainly is what makes us totally different than anything else that God ever made. Number three is freedom. Freedom gives us one of the basic characteristics of being a person. We have free will. We have choice. Now, granted, to a certain degree, we can only choose those things which God allows us within the parameters that he gives us. But, for example, man is free to the degree that God allows us to operate. You can choose to do right or you can choose to do wrong. Animals are instinctive. They have no choice. They do the same thing. Why do you think a bird, those birds keep coming back to the same place every year? Why? Because they're instinctive. Because God has created animals to be instinctive. Which is fascinating to me because if I was a bird, I'd pick a different place to live. But they keep coming back to the same place. Why do the swallows keep coming back to Capistrano? Because God had a mission built there and he wanted to keep people there coming to the mission. I don't, you know, it's like, see... See, and he used those birds to get people there so they can buy all the stuff that they sell. No, but, but it's like, but, but see, people have a freedom that animals don't have. Animals are instinctive, but men and women have the freedom to choose. And it's important that we understand that. See, God also has freedom to choose. It says all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. You see, God has the freedom to choose. What's wonderful is, we have the freedom to choose because we are created in the image and likeness of God. We have self-awareness because we are created in the image and likeness of God and God is aware of Himself. We have the same basic characteristics that God has because that's the way He is. That's the way we, why we are the way we are. And so when you look at that, God has freedom to choose, which is fascinating to me. But one of the things that's interesting is God has the freedom to choose and the freedom to do as he pleases, but he also restricts himself to those things that do not violate his character. Can God choose to do anything he wants to do? Absolutely. But does he choose to do anything and everything that he wants? Absolutely. Could he choose to do something that he didn't want? No. I remember when one of our Rams Bible says, the guy said, well, can God make a rock he can't move? It's like sometimes I wonder, it's like, you know, what in the, where'd this come from? Can God make a rock he can't move? Yeah, he could make a rock he couldn't move, but he chooses not to make a rock that he can't move. He's got the freedom to do it, but he also will not violate his character and who he is. So yeah, he has the freedom to choose to make a rock he can't move, but he won't make a rock he can't move because he chooses not to do that. Does that make sense? There you go. Okay, now, here's the problem. We have freedom to choose as well. We can choose right, we can choose wrong. But the interesting thing is, we don't have total freedom to choose outside of the parameters that God gives us freedom. I'll give you an example. There's no one in the world who can choose to go to heaven 
unless they choose to accept God's plan for how to get there. Follow that? We have freedom to choose, but we cannot choose outside of the parameters that God gives us. God has freedom to do anything that he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. We have freedom within the parameters that God allows us to have. It says in Job 23, 13, But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He can do whatever he wants to do. See, what's interesting is the basic human questions we all struggle with go back to this one particular point, don't they? Why did God create man with the freedom to choose to do wrong? Why did God do that? You know why? Because he chose to. And we can come up with whatever reason that we want. We can come up with all the reasons that sound good. We can say, you know why? Because isn't it better when somebody loves you because they choose to love you rather than love you because you make them love you? And we can say, oh yeah, that's a great reason. And maybe that's one of the reasons that God created man with the freedom to choose between right and wrong. But you know what? The bottom line is, he did what he did because he wanted to do it the way that he did it. And maybe one day, he'll share with us all those things that really bug us. And then maybe one day when we're face to face, it won't really matter anymore. So I don't know why we're getting a headache and having to take, run and take all these leaves and everything else about things that, you know what, God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. We have plenty of freedom, and there's enough freedom within the parameters that he gives us to give me enough problems to deal with on a daily basis of what choices to make without worrying about whether I have choices to make beyond the choices that he's already given me and allowed me to make. Does that make sense? Good. All right, here we go. Number four. Fourth basic characteristic of being a person is having purpose. Having a purpose in life. Having a plan. Having a goal. Having a direction. Think about this. You know what's amazing? You can have a plan or a purpose in life, and it all starts right here in your mind. You think about it? Hey, man plans his ways. But what? The Lord directs his steps. Man has the freedom to plan the direction that you and I want to go. Animals don't have that. They don't have a plan for their life. They don't have a purpose for being here other than the purpose that God has given them. But God allows people to have a purpose in life. His pur- I mean, and it's amazing when you stop and think about it. Isaiah 14, 26 and 27 says, This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed or proposed. And who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? You understand that God has a purpose for all of us. God has a plan for your life and for my life. One of the most amazing things about being introduced to a personal God was the first time that I heard that God had a plan for me. Not just a big general plan, but a very specific plan for each one of us. That God has a plan for every human being. That God has a purpose why he created every human being. That God has a purpose in the direction that he's taken this planet and and everything that's in it. God has a plan and his plan won't be thwarted. It won't be denied. It won't be stopped. Man, that's good news. I'm glad that I have a purpose. And one of the biggest dilemmas that people struggle with is, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Is it, is it to make money? Is it to be in this business? Is it to get married? Is it to raise children? Is it, is it to, to use the gifts that God's given me in, in, in specific ways? Is it, what is my purpose in life? 
And you know what the purpose in life for every human being is? To bring glory to God. We have been created to bring glory to God and to enjoy Him for all of eternity. That's our purpose. And yet, you know what? We're unique. Because there, I've never met a dog that's struggling with why it's here. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but can't they? But they but maybe they do, and we just don't know it yet. Oh, give it up. I mean, move on with your life. I mean, when was the last time you saw your dog sitting under a tree, looking up in the sky, scratching his head, saying, what purpose am I here for? They just don't, they don't struggle with this. It's okay, they don't struggle with it. Don't worry about it. What kills me is we got more people on earth worrying about what the purpose of animals is instead of worrying about the purpose why you're here. Don't worry about what Lassie's supposed to be doing. You worry about what you're supposed to be doing. What's your purpose in being here? Stop worrying about everything and everybody else. See, God gives us the freedom to make plans. Isaiah 43, 13, And yes, from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? God has a purpose. He has a plan. He has a reason for everything that He does. And the wonderful thing that makes Him personal is the fact that He does have a purpose and a plan. But He also is intelligent. And He has knowledge and understanding and wisdom and intelligence makes us different than everything around us. Knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Listen to Proverbs three nineteen and 20. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. His intelligence results in creative acts. It says, and, and uh, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down the dew. You know, what's interesting as you go through this is God is intelligent. And he gives us intelligence as well. Because we're created in his image and his likeness. That's why we are the way that we are. Knowledge, understanding, wisdom. And God is also a God of emotions. And all of us can identify with that because regretfully, if you take a look at everything that we've talked about so far, we tend to lean more toward the emotional side. We tend to lean toward, you know what, well, you know, we're emotional beings. Well, absolutely we are. And you know why we're emotional beings? Because God is an emotional being. He also is God loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You know what, God demonstrated his love for us, yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 11 tells us, In this the love of God was seen or made manifest toward us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You know, the most amazing thing is that you and I have the ability to love, listen, because He first loved us. See, you cannot love as God designed for us to love until you realize that God first loved you. That's where it all starts. 1 Corinthians 13, read it. The characteristics of love, a godly love. You cannot love as God designed for you to love until you've experienced the love of God and realize what love is all about. See, God is emotional. God is a God of love. But you know what? Here's where people struggle. People don't want to believe. God's a God of hate. Do you realize that God is a God of hate? That he experiences the emotion of hate as we experience hate? From the standpoint that, you know, the Bible tells us that there are six things. God hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination to him. God hates sin. He hates it. 
Some of us need to have that experience or that emotion in our life as well. We need to be people who hate sin and love righteousness. We've got the emotion of hate, yet we hate for all the wrong reasons. The Bible says be angry, and yet sin not. As, as we look at the emotion of anger, God gets angry. The wrath of God, you realize that the, the hell is an expression of the anger of God towards sin. The wrath of God is expressed in hell. See, people don't want to believe that. Oh, no. See, everyone wants God to be just the God of love. Everyone wants God just to be one-dimensional. Everyone wants God to just be a loving God. And yet, we experience all these other emotions and we think that God does not. How foolish. We experience them because He experiences them. Because we're made in His image and His likeness. We're made just as He is, though we'll never be Him. But we experience His image and His likeness, the personality, the same as what God is. And so if you can experience hate and anger, guess what? God experiences hate and anger. The difference is, as Jesus was tempted in all things, yet he did not sin. God never crosses the line. God's anger is always righteous anger. God's wrath is always a right, righteous wrath. There's no one in heaven that, that, that isn't going to be there by the grace of God, and there's no one in hell that isn't going to be there because that is the choice of God because those have rejected him. His wrath will be just. But he's also a God of compassion. Luke chapter 15, the greatest story on, on the compassion of God. The man or the woman who turns their back on God and does what's wrong before God. And yet when we confess our sins, he sees us from a distance and he comes running to get up close and personal. I love that story. Because the son was out there saying, I'm not even worthy to be a son anymore. I've blown it. I've screwed up. I've done everything that I should have done. I've done it wrong. Can God ever forgive me for this? And you know what the answer is? Absolutely. Some of you are sitting here feeling disqualified because you're doing things that are wrong before God. Nobody else knows it but you, but you, you know your own heart because you're self-aware and you know what's going on. And what he's saying is, the only thing that keeps you from the forgiveness of God is the confession of your sin. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from unrighteousness. Do you understand how important that is? We can be aware of our sin. God allows us to be made aware of our sin so that we can confess it before God, ask for forgiveness, and be put back in the game of life to serve him and bring him glory. I love it. You know what 1 John 1, 9 is to me? It's like, have you ever driven up Highway 1, Coast Highway going up north? You know, it's all windy, it's beautiful, but it's also dangerous. And, and, and in the wintertime when it's foggy and hazy and the fog moves in and it gets foggy and you're driving up there. See, 1 John 1, 9 is God's first aid station to life. And it's strategically placed along Coast Highway 1, our first aid stations, because it's so far from other towns. And if there's an accident, they need to be able to respond to get there to help the people that are in trouble. You understand this? 1 John 1, 9 is God's first aid station. And you know what? I'll tell you this. I will never drive off a cliff a coast highway deliberately to find out how that first aid station works. Do you understand? But I know Christians all day long who want to experience God's forgiveness by driving off the highway of life. Well, let's find out if God's mercy is true, if he'll forgive us, if he is compassionate. Man, let me tell you something. God never confuses the issue. There's always a price to be paid for sin. There's always consequences for action. But is he there to pick us up? Is he there to forgive us? Is he there to renew us and to restore us and to resurrect us and put us back in the game of life? Absolutely. And we need to always remember that the compassion of God 
is important for us to realize. And the same with us. We can be compassionate because God is compassionate. We can be angry because God is angry. We can have hate because God hates. We can have love because God first loved us. We can also be jealous because God is a jealous God and jealous for the things that are right. What's the purpose of all these things? All these emotions, everything that we talked about. Think about the six characteristics, right? Number one, life. Number two, self-consciousness, aware of ourselves. Number three, freedom. Number four, purpose. Number five, intelligence. Number six, emotions. All these things we possess because we were created in the image and likeness of God. Now, here's the question. And if we are real people, then God also is a personal God. If we meet that definition of being personal, then certainly God does as well. Because the Bible clearly paints that picture of God as being personal. And the conclusion of all of it is the best thing of all. If God is a personal God, then we can know him in a personal way. Everything in the Bible points to the fact that we can have a personal relationship with the God who created us. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. You and I can have a personal relationship with God by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible points out over and over again, our Father, that God is our Father. If you're a child of God, then God is your Father. As personal and as relational as it gets. He said one time to the Pharisees, hey, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in Heaven know how to give great gifts? Psalm 23, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. A personal relationship with God. See, if God is distant to you, it's because you don't know that God can be personal. And as foreign as that concept is, hopefully understanding what the Bible teaches about the person of God will help us to realize that we can have a personal relationship. 1 John 3, 1, we'll close on this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Do you know Him? If you do not, it's as simple as asking Jesus Christ to come into your life. And God will reveal Himself to you through the person of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for this opportunity to get to know You better, to understand the characteristics of life, to realize that it's because You are personal that we can be personal not only with one another, but have a personal relationship with You. God, we just thank you for that. We thank you for the characteristics of life. We thank you for life itself, that all life is a gift from you. We thank you that we can be aware of ourselves, that we can make plans for our life, and yet you direct our steps. We thank you for the freedom to choose, the freedom to choose where, where we want to live, and if we want to be married or not be married, the freedom to choose what job we want or trade or whether we want to go to school or not go to school, the freedom that you give us to choose within the parameters that you've given us. God, we just thank you for that. Father, we thank you for the emotions that you've given us. May they always be used in a way that's pleasing to you. May we be angry at sin and yet sin not. God, may we be compassionate toward others. God, may we experience love from you first so that we can love others in the way that you would love them. God, we just thank you for all these things. And we just thank you that it's through Jesus that we could be called a child of God for believing in his name. 
that you've become our father. In Romans 8, you tell us that we can call you daddy, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. God, we thank you for that relationship and the intimacy of it. We thank you that you know every hair in our head and that you know every day of our life that's been appointed for us. We thank you that you know more about us than we'll ever know about ourselves, that you search our hearts, that you expose the wickedness in us so that we can confess our sins. And God, most of all, we thank you for forgiveness. For none of us are righteous, none of us are perfect, we've all made mistakes. But we just thank you that you're a God who's compassionate, who forgives our sins and picks us up and dusts us off and puts us back in the game of life so that we can be used by you to bring glory to you and draw people to your Son. And we just thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.